ready here. I'm wondering if I have a volunteer to open in prayer. Can I ask Frank, would you be willing to? Yeah? All right. Amen. All right, so we are on chapter 7, section number 3, and we got part partway through this one, and uh, we'll just pick it up from there. So I'll read it from the top, and then we'll start working through the Scripture passages again where we left off. So we're talking about covenants, and uh, which is essentially God's arrangements that He enters into with mankind. Um, and there's a series of them through the Old Testament, and we've discussed that Christians organize differently how these covenants fit together, um, which seems like kind of an academic exercise, and it maybe is, but it has real-life practical outworkings, and I mentioned some of those. What are some of the practical outworkings of how you do your covenant theology? I mentioned a few examples. How's that? Yes, infant and adult baptism is probably the most obvious one that you see in real life, um, depending on how you put these covenants together, uh, whether circumcision carries over into baptism or whether baptism is a new sacrament uh, on its own. That's a big one. What's another one? I mentioned a couple of them, practically speaking. Here's one. Should the church be pacifistic? Or does the church have a role to speak to government? That's a big one. Okay. Is the church led by democracy or by elders? That's another one. Okay. So there's lots of things uh, that depending on your covenant theology, you're going to end up with different answers. So um, this isn't an impractical area of study. Okay. So let's read section 3 on page 23. This covenant is revealed in the gospel. It was revealed, first of all, to Adam and the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. After that, it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. This covenant is based on the eternal covenant transaction between the Father and the Son concerning the redemption of the elect. Only through the grace of this covenant have those saved from among the descendants of fallen Adam obtained life and blessed immortality. Humanity is now utterly incapable of being accepted by God on the same terms on which Adam was accepted in his state of innocence. Okay, and if I'm not mistaken, we, were, we left off in Hebrews 11, right? And why don't we go there so that's, or no, we didn't. We finished on footnote 6. So that would have been Hebrews 1. 
Okay? So again, the first, uh, the first promise of the gospel that we see is in the garden. Uh, and the woman is promised a seed who is going to crush the head of the serpent. Okay? And that promise has been working itself out all through redemptive history. Um, and there have been a series of covenants uh, where God has taken individual men to represent his people uh, and has worked with them in, uh, in particular ways, kind of expanding his purposes. And so we often talk about five covenant heads. And so again, I'll give a test right now. Who are the five covenant heads in Scripture as redemption unfolds? Abraham is one. Moses? Noah? David? And Jesus. Yep, that's right. Okay, so those are our series of covenant heads. So we left off at footnote six. Um, and why don't we, just so we're kind of overlapping here so we're not missing anything, let's look at that here. So after that, it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. Okay? Um, and if we read Hebrews 1, 1, who wants to read Hebrews 1, 1? And may as well read to verse 3, through the end of verse 3. Who wants to take that? Caleb. Okay. So you see, this is talking past tense about the prophets. We're pointing to Jesus, and now Jesus comes and he is the fullness of all of this. Okay, so this is what, part of what is meant uh, that it says it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. So Jesus is the completion or the termination point of everything these old covenant heads did. He is the seed of the woman. Okay, he is... Uh, the better ark in which we are saved from the waters of God's judgment. Okay? He personifies the, and, and perfectly obeys the law of Moses. He's the perfect mediator between God and man, where Moses was just a, a temporary one and an imperfect one who sinned himself. Right? He is the perfect Abraham uh, who brings his people uh, ultimately to uh, possess the land. Okay? He is the greater David who is expanding the bounds of his kingdom and who is perfectly leading uh, and protecting his people. So Jesus is, uh, when we talk about the termination point, I've used that language before, of all the promises that we see all these men performing in history. All of them are doing a role play or kind of a live action uh, of who Jesus is going to be. And through these other people in the Old Testament, we see all these pictures of Jesus building and building and building until the final hero comes and delivers us. I was talking with Terry Bandman. He's come here to speak before. He works with uh, Ethnos 360. Um, I had a chance to talk with him a week or two ago. And he says when they go into tribal settings and they start telling these stories from the Old Testament, he says, and these tribal people have never been exposed to this before. So this is all new to them. They're not bored by it. 
And every time one of these great figures in our Old Testament stories gets close to delivering, he says you can just tell these tribal people are so excited. Here's the hero. This is going to be the one that's going to save these people. And then invariably, they fail. And he says you can just see the the emotional involvement these people have as they tell the story of, of redemption. And then... You know, and well, Abraham, he's going to be the one. Well, and then Abram's imperfect. Well, David's going to be the one. Well, David's imperfect. And so they're working through this in this kind of a fashion to build up the mindset for these people to make them ready for a Savior because there's been thousands upon thousands of years of failed uh, heroes of these stories, and so Jesus is the ultimate one. So one way you can look at this succession of stories or these covenant heads is this is like scaffolding that's building this great project that is uh, Jesus himself. Uh, And so Jesus is the fullness. Jesus is the termination point. Jesus is uh, the perfect covenant head who uh, in him expands and perfects and finalizes, ratifies, so to speak, all these past covenants. And so it's in him that all of these are finally and fully accomplished and perfected. Um, And that would be a point where I would stop and say, this is one of those areas, and I'm not sure to what level we want to discuss it. I'd be curious on feedback. If it says, okay, that's all good, then we'll just drive on. But this is where uh, those Christians that practice, and I'm talking now among Protestant evangelicals. I'm not talking about uh, Roman Catholic or necessarily even Anglican uh, baby baptism. But Protestant, fully Protestant baby baptism would say this. It would say the new covenant started uh, at Genesis 3.15. Okay, so we're in the new covenant then already. And so all these covenant heads are just administrators of the new covenant. So we're in the New Covenant fully, um, back in the Old Testament, and then Christ is the final one, but we're in the New Covenant. And so therefore, there's a lot more continuation from certain practices that carry over into the New Testament era. Because essentially then, in their thinking, the command to circumcise babies was happening already in the New Covenant. And so it seems that much more natural that we would carry it over to baptism in the last chapter of the New Covenant, whereas those of us who are Baptist would say, no, those covenants were covenants of promise. The substance of the New Covenant wasn't there yet. The substance of the New Covenant is Jesus, and so these, these are promises. This is scaffolding that's building up, but the New Covenant that starts with Jesus is actually new. Okay? The substance is fully here now, and so it's not necessary to carry the practice of circumcision over to baptism. It's a different sign because we're in an actually new covenant. So the echoes and the types and the shadows that were there don't have to be carried over in exactly the same way. Okay? And all, all of us are trying to say we recognize there's some continuity and we recognize there's some discontinuity between old and new covenant. Um, and depending on how much continuity and discontinuity you'll see, some of our church practices are going to look different. Uh, but as Baptists, we would say uh, that the New Covenant is actually new. Okay? And, and I think Hebrews 8 uh, fleshes this out. This doesn't mean everything disappears from the Old Testament, not at all. I think we've been clear on that. But in terms of how something like circumcision comes over, it, it's actually new. So it's appropriate to give uh, the sign in a different way to those who have repentance and faith 
not to all those who uh, have believing parents or uh, are part of the covenant community, so to speak. Um, so, I'll leave that there unless there's further discussion. But if you're wondering, because most of us, almost all of us grew up with believer's baptism, which is good. Um, but I think what happens then is you get this mindset. I just assumed, till maybe 15, 20 years ago, I just assumed that everyone who practiced child baptism was either Catholic or extremely liberal. And I have found out that is not at all the case. Okay, there are, there are many... <laughs> There are many very conservative, gospel-believing Christians uh, who come from this. And I've mentioned a few, uh, a few of our own evangelical heroes, even in the last number of years. Francis Schaeffer practiced uh, pedo-baptism. Martin Lloyd-Jones practiced pedo-baptism. Billy Graham's wife grew up that way. Okay? So this isn't just weird stuff. It's, it's, we're not accustomed to it. Um, and the deeper I've gotten into this, the more convinced I am uh, that that the new covenant is new and that we, we baptize believers on profession of faith, but at least we want to be fair to those who think uh, differently and understand how they got there so you can better understand even your own position. Um, questions on that? I'm good to leave it there. This is kind of a, it's not on the test, but leave it in the back of your head so you understand how some people have gotten to that position. Does it make sense that the new covenant is actually new? That the substance comes in Jesus? Okay. Circumcision or baptism? I'm not sure I'm totally understanding. Yeah, well they would say it's the new it's the new updated sign of being of the covenant people of God. And in the old covenant, the covenant people of God were a mixed bag. Right? National Israel was comprised of believers and unbelievers. And so those who practice infant baptism today would be okay with unbelievers as part of the church. Okay? If your last name is Scottish, you're a Presbyterian. And you were born here. And so whether or not you're a believer, in one sense, you're part of this Christian community. Okay? Uh, if you have a German last name, you're literally a Lutheran. So of course we're going to baptize you. And it will remain to be seen whether you become a believer or not. But just like all the children of national Israel got the sign whether they were going to believe or not, all children of believers get the sign of baptism. And so they'd say it's new. It is new because this is the chapter that we're living. Uh, but they would see the church the same way that they saw national Israel as a mixed bag of believers and unbelievers whereas those who would emphasize the newness of the New Covenant would say, no, the New Covenant's better, which means we have a believing church, which means we wait to administer this until we have signs that this person is a believer, and then they will get the sign. So they'd say it's a superior covenant to, to these old ones. I'm, and I'm not sure if I'm understanding quite all the way what you're asking
Right. Yeah, and if you want to see a debate that's... Debates are always good because you get the best of both sides arguing their point. My favorite one is James White versus Greg Strawbridge. Okay, because they're both able to articulate their own point, and it's the best of both sides, and they're both arguing within the framework of covenant theology, and it's, it's an it's a instructive debate. And you can guess who I think won, but at least, <laughs> at least uh, both sides are fairly represented. Anything else on this? Okay, and so if you're also wondering why so many churches are state churches, this also has to do uh, with that, uh, that they are okay intentionally with having a mixed church of believers and unbelievers. Okay, that's why the Church of Scotland is, if you're born there, you're part of it. Okay, the, the, some of the Reformed churches in mainland Europe, if you're Dutch, you're part of the church. If you're German, you're part of the church. If you're Danish, you're part of, you're just a Lutheran because of where you're born. Or you're just reformed because you were literally born in Switzerland. What else are you going to be? You have to be this. Um, and they're okay with unbelief uh, and belief, or believers and unbelievers both together being part of the church. Um, what they would do is not receive you into membership fully later. So one way you can look at this is... Can I use kind of an everyday blue-collar analogy? Okay. Um, the, some of these churches that practice infant baptism, it's like uh, a nightclub where everyone's allowed in, but then there's a bouncer there to kick you out if you're on bad behavior. Okay. But by default, everybody's in. And if you behave badly enough, you'll get put out. Okay. Whereas Baptist theology would say, no, you've got to show me your admission card before you get in here. Right? We want to know that you're a believer before we give baptism and church membership. Okay? So one is everyone's in unless we have reason to put you out. The other one is, this is we want to know that you belong here before you're in. Would be uh, different ways of... In terms of membership, yes, yes, but in terms of giving a covenant sign. That's right, but that's already not quite a state church way to handle it, right? That's already a free church way to handle paedo-baptism, which is another further distinction. So what Ron is saying, and this is true, is in many churches that baptize infants, uh, you don't become a member until you do your profession of faith. And so in that case, the analogy would be, if those of us who do uh, believer's baptism are used to a child dedication, that would be a dry infant baptism. <laughs> or put the other way, in, uh, in churches that practice pedal baptism, when the kids go through profession of faith and become members, that's when we would do baptism in Baptist churches. Right? Now we're saying, this is my faith. This isn't just my parents anymore. Right? Um, I'm talking about the older church-state model, where your baptism is your citizenship. Is, it, it's all put together. But you're right. In, in, the, in the other Reformed and Lutheran churches, 
you're admitted into membership on your profession of faith. Yeah. I'd say outwardly, yes, there's many blessings, and I think any Baptist should say there's many blessings with being born to Christian parents who are going to pray with you, who are going to read Scripture with you, teach you the Gospel, and so forth. Um, so, of course, there's many blessings. And most paedo-baptists, which just means infant Baptists, don't believe that the baptism does anything magical. It's just a, a sign you're already born to Christian family, uh, we are a Christian family. We're part of the church, so we're going to give you this sign. Um, but they don't believe it does anything magical. It doesn't erase original sin. It doesn't make you born again. It's just it's a sign to say who you are. Um, and, and I would say, but the same truths are true for any Christian family. Of course there's blessings and an advantage that comes with growing up in a Christian home. Of course there are. You'd, you'd be crazy to say there's no advantage. There's, there's many benefits that come with it. So in that sense, outwardly, yes, I would treat them like they're children of believers, but that doesn't mean we have to baptize them. We can wait until, uh, until profession of faith, so to speak. Yeah. It has nothing to do with it. No, that's right. The child is either saved or not saved, right? Well, believers, older people too. Yeah, and so this is, a, baptism is a huge, huge issue. Those of us who grew up more or less the same way I did, would have had no concept, I had no concept of this until relatively recently, how different the views are on this, right? So in Roman Catholicism, the baptism does something. It removes original sin so the child can cooperate. It frees the child. In Lutheran baby baptism, it's kind of a partial step, and it says that that is the moment of regeneration for everyone who is going to be regenerated. You're born again at your baptism for those who will be born again. Okay, so it's kind of a halfway step. It does something, but not for everyone who gets it. Okay, in Roman Catholicism, everyone who gets it, the thing is working. In Lutheranism, for those who are going to eventually believe the baptism did something back there, i.e. it made you born again, uh, for the vast majority of Reformation baby baptism, it's just a sign to say this is a Christian kid in a Christian covenant community. We're going to uh, treat this child this way. And then for... Uh, Baptist baptism, we're saying it's a sign and a seal, we agree with that, but it's administered to those who have already shown with their profession of faith that they have made that step. So even within pedo baptism, there's a, well, and in believer's baptism, there's a wide range of what people understand is happening <laughs> when it's happening, right? A, a Lutheran and a Catholic and a Reformed would all disagree on what's happening, even though it looks outwardly the same. There's a baby and there's water and there's a preacher. 
It looks the same, but the understanding is very, very different. Do it. Okay. Yeah. Does everyone hear Inga's question? So in the New Testament, it seems to happen pretty quick. Someone, someone saved and they look for water. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And we typically take a bit of time. What do we do with that? Why would we take a bit of time? Is it disobedient to take a bit of time? Should. Okay. Here's how I'd understand it. This is just me speaking. I think for the most part, some of us do take too long. Okay? Because the scriptural model is things keep moving. However, uh, we don't have apostles in our midst today to separate wheat and goats, wheat and chaff, and sheep from goats. Okay? Uh, Do the apostles have insight that normal church elders don't? I'd say yes. Okay? So they have the authority to do certain things without a testing mechanism that we clearly require today. So I think a little bit of time to make sure that this isn't, you know, the seed that's quickly germinating on a rock and then it's going to peter out and they don't even know what's happening. It's just emotional exuberance, so let's do it tomorrow morning. Uh, I think there is wisdom in slowing it down a little bit, make sure everybody understands what's happening because we're not apostles, okay? Uh, and often the example is used of, uh, of the Ethiopian eunuch, right? He's, he's saved and, okay, where's water? Okay? But church elders are not apostles. So there's certain things we can't know or do in kind of an apostolic kind of way. And so I think there is wisdom in slowing it down. Does it need to take a year? No, I don't think so. Should it happen six hours after profession of faith? Maybe not. Let's make sure you understand that the, the root of the matter is there as far as we can tell. But to say, well, you have to be, you know, 19 years old and have been a Christian for seven years so we know that this is genuine, well, that's probably pushing it too far the other way. I, you have lots of Baptist churches that would would go down to a very low age, right? Um, So I don't think there is a magic age. I think each child is going to be different in the way they understand things, the way they process things, uh, even the way they understand their own uh, salvation. Uh, I think there's latitude. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all. Like, you have to be 16 or, or, you know, maybe a 12-year-old is very aware of what's happening. And you're going to say, no, sweetie, you're not a Christian. We're not going to you know, we're not going to take that seriously till you're 18. Well, I, at what point does, are you discouraging <laughs> obedience? Right? <laughs> and there we are. <laughs> yeah. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would just be happy to say I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all. I know people who were baptized at age eight and are sincere people who love the Lord, and I don't think it was a fake baptism. And I know other people who felt unsure until they were 20 and waited. Um, I'd encourage things to keep moving, but I wouldn't say that there's a, a perfect age at which you have to be. I think what we're looking for is a sincerity and an understanding of the gospel, and that is going to happen differently for different people. Anything else on this? My, you? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, did everyone hear what Evangeline said? That for those who are baptized very quickly after their conversion, uh, that might be a meaningful thing for them to look back on the significance of that event, if I'm understanding you correctly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it might make their conversion weightier. And on that point, I would say yes and amen. So another, if we want to really pull this apart and examine it very closely, there's also different views of how things, like within evangelical Protestants here, how, how sacraments work. So I grew up with a view that treated it just as memorials. There's nothing happening other than it's just a, it's just a pure memorial of us remembering back. Um... And I think there's more to it. I think there is a signing and a sealing, and I don't think it's magical, but I think God's Spirit really is present in those things, right? So when we do communion here, I don't think that it becomes blood and flesh, but is the Holy Spirit actually present when we do that? And I'd say, yeah, He is. It's not just a bare sign. God's grace is, is in and, and under and through it, and so there is grace that's there, um, and a certain spiritual presence is kind of the, the language that's often used. And so, can, it, can baptism in the Lord's Supper also be something that we look back on to help strengthen us? And I think it can be. I think it can be. So, I wouldn't say that it's just pure memorial. I think God's Spirit is actually not in a magical way, but I think He is working in those things to help strengthen us and to give us milestones even for our own assurance to look, no, I'm baptized, I, you know, I'm, I'm taking the Lord's Supper, I'm in church, I'm, I'm surrounding myself by this. I think there is a grace that comes with that in a non-magical way. You always have to be careful how you say that because people think, oh, so it's magical? No. No. But God's grace is present. Have we pulled baptism apart enough? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Should we pull it apart some more? Okay. Are you seeing that there's not one size fits all for believer's baptism or for infant baptism? There's lots of nuance here. Lots of nuance. Okay. Uh, and what this is setting us up for here, uh, this statement is, is setting us up for what we're later going to read in this confession about believer's baptism. Because it's not proposing the one-to-one carryover, it's proposing an expansion uh, and the newness of the new uh, covenant. Okay? So this, on the surface, we'll read very, very similar. One, I've shared that before. 
if you've heard, who's heard of the Westminster Confession of Faith? Okay. This is the Westminster Confession of Faith for Baptists. It's almost word for word identical. And they did that on purpose. It wasn't plagiarism. The Baptists did this on purpose and said, we don't want to destroy unity. We, we're not trying to go on anything new. We're going to leave it word for word exactly the same because we have the same faith. But we differ on uh, the appropriate use of baptism. Uh, and so that's essentially the only difference here. And that was a self-conscious move to not create schism. Did I hear someone? Yep. That it doesn't bring your salvation? Well, and I would agree, it doesn't bring your salvation. Well, there could be several answers to that. Some would say it's not necessary. Um, you can live with difference. Some would say there's going to be other practical things that are going to start showing up. Um, and part of it, and this is probably where I would go, is to say you can't practice everything in one church. So is there a way churches can cooperate with the same gospel and cooperate even though you can't do infant baptism and believer's baptism equally, right? Um, some of these practical things. You can't ordain women and not ordain women in the same church. <laughs> you just can't, right? So some of these things, once it gets down to a practical thing, a church can, has to commit to a direction. And you're not saying with that that everyone who's different is outside of the faith or they're crazy. We're saying this is our understanding, this is what we practice, um, people who might disagree are welcome here, just so it's clear, this is how we understand it. We're not saying other people aren't Christians. Um, it just comes down to how practical do these things get. And by moving from one church to another, you're not automatically saying everyone is a heretic or unsaved, or at least if you're a healthy Christian, you shouldn't think that way. What you're doing is just trying to find alignment between practice and how you understand things. Right? So these Baptists didn't stay in their Presbyterian churches. They moved on, but they moved on as brothers, okay? They're not saying the Presbyterian church is anathema. They're saying these are our brothers in the Lord, but, but our practice can't work with that, so we'll be right here beside you laboring for the gospel with a different understanding of what to do about this baptism thing, and I don't know if that, that would be where my own, my own thing would go. I would not want to say someone's not a sincere Christian over any of this. Well, yeah, you're agreeing not to fight about it. You're going in with your eyes open. And I know lots of people, some friends of mine, who the only faithful gospel-preaching church in town is a church which practices a different view of baptism. 
and I know people that have gone both ways, Baptist or in a Presbyterian church, because that's the only conservative Bible-believing church they can find. And so they'll go there. Uh, and other way around. I know Presbyterians, Pado-Baptists, there's only one gospel-preaching church in town. It's a Baptist church. I'm going there. Uh, you see lots of that. And I think we're living in a time, I'll do a little bit of cultural theology here, I think we're living in a time where the traditional denominational breakups is becoming less and less meaningful because I think what we're finding is the divide isn't so much horizontal. You know, here's the Lutherans, here's the Reformed, here's the Mennonites, here's the Baptists. I don't think we're seeing that so much. I think we're seeing a conservative-liberal divide across all of them. Okay? So a conservative Lutheran and a conservative Baptist actually have far more in common than two people in the same Lutheran church, one of who's conservative and one of who's liberal. I think we're seeing the way we organize ourselves changing very drastically among liberal and conservative lines, not among last names. Right? There was a time if you were Scottish, you were Presbyterian. If you're Low German, you're a Mennonite. If you're English, you're an Anglican. Right? And that's just the way it, it had to be. And I think that's changing. And I think the, the rate at which that's changing is increasing. So I think we're seeing lots more of um, this kind of thing, which I think is glorious, where there's people who want conservative Bible churches and Bible theology that have different kinds of last names. And we're seeing that not just here. I mean, we're seeing that everywhere. And I, I think that's a positive, that the way we are aligning ourselves is changing. I would, I would agree with that. But this is something, frankly, um, that I don't think our great-grandparents would have understood. Like, there's people with Dutch and Low German and English last names all in a church together, and we'd say, yeah, isn't that glorious? <laughs> right? But that thinking has, has changed so much, right? Where, where your geography dictated which church you were part of for many, many years. But I agree, there's lots of people 
who are refugees looking for conservative churches? I agree. And it's an important one. I wouldn't grieve it. It's good. God's cleaning house. It's good. It's glorious. Yeah, we need that every now and again. So, having accomplished absolutely nothing in our section, (laughs) but you know what? We accomplished something else. We had an important discussion on things that matter, even if we didn't move ahead in our paragraph here. Uh, It's good, and it's all related to how we understand uh, covenant theology um, and its practical outworkings and why we can be some things are just a straight go or no-go, biblical inerrancy, penal substitution, uh, gender distinctives. There's certain things that are just so obvious. It's the biggie on the art chart, and there's absolutely no wiggle room whatsoever. And then you find these other doctrines, which you can say in good faith people have disagreed. They do disagree. They will disagree until the Lord returns. Um, and can we live with that? And I hope so. Because if everyone had to think exactly like me on every last issue, we'd have the advantage of all being right. But, <laughs> but you'd be pretty lonely, right? We'd be pretty lonely. So uh, this is a good place for Christian discipline to, to know what you believe, know why you believe it, and then to also be gracious with those who come from a different background or maybe understand some of these things differently. Okay? Not, not every doctrinal question is a five-alarm fire. Some absolutely are. Okay? And some are, we can discuss this as brothers, we can debate it, um, and we're, we're brothers before and afterward. And some of them are of the sifting sort between belief and uh, unbelief. And so my hope is as we discuss this stuff, this is an in-house discussion between sincere, genuine, born-again believers. So if we won't go back there, it's 10.15, we can dismiss. Are there any other questions or discussion or comments on, uh, on this or related topics before we close? Okay. Can we see that there's a priority? Sometimes people call this theological triage. Okay. If you're in the emergency room, you're going to treat the heart attack guy before you treat the broken leg guy, right? It's triage. Theology works the same way. Okay? Some things need to be dealt with right now because it's life or death. Other things, uh, not everything's a five-alarm fire. Then, let's close in prayer. Father God, I want to uh, thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, I want to thank you for the way you're working in the church uh, and pruning and building and strengthening your church even today. Lord, as some of the historical distinctions and some of the historical reasons for the way we've organized ourselves are changing uh, and a new reality and new threats to your church emerge, uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us a, a godly sense of wisdom to know uh, how to relate to one another, to see what's happening, to understand the times like the sons of Issachar, that we know where we are at in the story, uh, that we can uh, see which things, uh, 
we ought to understand and, and treat as a first-degree thing, and other things which we can be generous with other people who have come from different backgrounds uh, than ourselves, and we can have a different understanding. Lord, I pray most importantly, though, that we would be committed to your inerrant word, and as we discuss these things, that it's always on the basis of what your word teaches, and not because of what we grew up with, or what we're used to, or what feels right, uh, but that we would always be going back again and again to the source of all truth, which is your word, refining our own thoughts, challenging one another uh, in a spirit of love. Lord, and I pray that you'd be with us this morning as we have a time of coffee and visiting now. I pray that your spirit would be present with us, that we can love each other well, uh, get to know each other better, encourage one another uh, in your word, and that you'd be with us as we also move to corporate worship, that above all, you would be glorified, you would be praised, uh, and that you would feed us through your word. Thank you for your kindness. Pray that you bless us as we go about the rest of our morning. Pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.